Continuing once again in the book of Matthew in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, the birth of Jesus Christ, incest and murder. The lineage of Christ according to the flesh is recorded in the first half of the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. In verse 17, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew writes this, So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ fourteen generations. And now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It took place in this way. Not in another way. Not in a polished up way and not in a glossed over way. It took place in this way. As the Lord had said to the prophet in Isaiah chapter 42, I am the Lord. And I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold the former things that have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He was telling them his word. And he is telling them his word. In Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy by which it was brought forth. That genealogy begins with Abraham. Not because other men had no knowledge of or had not received the promise, Adam or Noah or Shem. But instead because Abraham was the first man that God gave understanding to. Understanding by which the promise was ordained to grow. And so it began in the knowing of men. For Abraham was the first to see the promise in a definitive way. But he would not be the last. And so once again this morning, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
the birth of Christ happened in this way. Not another way. In this way. Canaanite prostitutes, Moabite widows, once worshippers of demons, now the Ibir, the Hebrew, the crossed over ones. So that they brought forth the lineage of David the king and the lineage of Christ our Lord. And if all of that is not crazy enough, today it gets even crazier with Tamar and Bathsheba, Judah and David. You can look, and we're not going to. We would be here until next year. If you looked at every single person in this genealogy, the failures that they had in the flesh and the victories that they had in the spirit, we would literally be here for a year and never make it out of the first 17 verses of chapter 1. When you go back and look at the narratives, the, the Old Testament unfolds like a map coming out of its envelope. It just explodes before you. But in all of the genealogy, there is only four women mentioned. And every single time, it is a particular display of divine, unmerited grace. And so we're going to look at these four women. We looked at two last week. We're going to look at two this week. And it's not just them. It's the culture around them and the men that interact with them. And what you see, specifically with Tamar, as she's related to Judah, not the tribe, but the man, is nothing less than full frontal failure. I'm talking about the kind of failure where you don't just face plant, but you face plant and break your nose, your jaw, and both orbital lobes. This is as bad as it gets. It's as ugly. It is depravity on parade. Contrary to popular belief, Judah, the man, was not the guy that you might think he was. It is not out of his line that you would expect, that anyone would expect the lion and the lamb to rise. The events that we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 38 today are concurrent with the events that were happening with Joseph in Egypt. And if you look at Joseph and what he is doing as one of the archetypes, one of the pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, if you look at what he's doing and the two tribes that are going to come out of him, when you look at those two tribes, you would think, you would think that it would be Joseph's line in which the lion and the lamb would rise. And yet it is in their midst where we left Amos 
with a blasphemous king going, This, O Israel, is thy gods that led you out of Egypt. And it is Judah, in all of his depravity, from which the Christ will come. It starts in Judah with a willingness to integrate with pagans. A willingness to be bound to that which he should not be bound. And so this morning in Genesis chapter 38, in verses 1 through 5, unequally yoked, we find the head of not just one of the twelve tribes of Israel, but the tribe of Israel from which the king would come. And it says in verse 38, or chapter 38, verse 1, that it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hurrah. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. He turned and he took a Canaanite for his wife something that would later be specifically forbidden by the law of God, but something that the people of Abraham already knew was forbidden. For in Genesis chapter 28, verse 1, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, saying, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And the thing that they already knew both in their hearts and in their minds, would later be codified into law when the Lord spoke to Moses, saying in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and shall show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. And he would destroy you quickly. What these people already knew to be true would later be codified in a law where it could not be denied. Hang on to that thought. Because one of the things you're going to see today as we move through Genesis chapter 38 is that these people, the sons and daughters of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, were way ahead of the ball game. There were things from the Lord that they already knew to be true 
because Abraham saw Christ's day. They already knew it. Even before the law came. And one of the things they knew was Leverite marriage. Now it's a big term, but basically it works like this. Genesis chapter 38, verses 6 through 8. Judah, having borne these three sons from this Canaanite woman, though he knew better, Judah took a wife for heir his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now we have no idea the manner of his wickedness. It is not recorded. Just that God decided it was worthy of the death penalty. And so that's what he got. And then Judah said to Onan, the secondborn, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Once again, what they already knew would later be codified into law. In Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verses 5 through 10, in Moses delivering the law of God to the people of Israel from the word, from the, from, from the mouth of God himself. In verse 5 of chapter 25, it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall secede to the name of his dead brother. That is, or that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. All right, so here is the law on Leverite marriage. It is a law that these people already knew in their hearts, but 400 years later would be codified when God gave the law from the top of Mount Sinai to Moses. And he says, here's how it's going to work in Israel. In Israel. The line must continue. Why? Because it is the means that God has chosen by which the Christ will come. Failure is not an option. Therefore, if you have a man that dies and he doesn't have an heir... It is his brother's responsibility to take his wife and produce an heir in his name. What they knew 
already would later be codified in law. They knew it because Abraham had seen Christ's day. And the law that was coming would speak of the day that Abraham saw. Which is why in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus told the Jews, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And so if we're not careful, if we're not careful, in studying anthropology, we will look back and say, okay, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and the twelve, they all had this kind of cultural identity where you did this thing that really kind of seems way outside of the box for the kind of stuff we would do today. But they all had this cultural identity and eventually that identity was then when they exploded into a people and not just a family, it was codified into law. I would tell you the exact opposite is true. The reality is, is because of supernatural intervention of grace, Abraham saw the day of Christ. And when he saw it, the reality was that everything that would come out of the law later was designed to speak about that day. And so Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then his boys all knew these things because Abraham handed it down to Isaac and down to Jacob and down to the twelve. They knew the tenets of the law before the law was put into rote. Because they had already seen the day about which the law would speak of. Here's how big of a deal it was. Because I know this is like way outside the box for us. Like who wants to sleep with their brother's wife? And outside of executive leadership in the U.S. today. Who really wants to do that? Here's how big of a deal it was. Listen to what he says. Deuteronomy chapter 25 Verse 7, if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate my brother's, his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. This is a very pointed speaking. They shall speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. You understand, that's a death sentence outside of this context. She shall pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. She shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who has had his sandal pulled off. Now that may sound funny to you unless you've ever lost a shoe in the middle of a fist fight. 
And then it's not funny at all. My father would tell you that during the Tet Offensive of 1968, they slept with their boots on every night. You never took them off. That's how big of a deal this was. You take him to the elders if you won't do it, they're going to have a real stern discussion with him. If he still won't do it, then you pull the sandal off his foot and spit in his face right in front of everybody at the gate. Nobody wants, at least not anybody that doesn't have their depravity totally on display, nobody wants to sleep with their dead brother's wife. But Onan, he doesn't want to sleep with his dead brother's wife either, but it's not nearly out of a noble cause. Instead, it's out of greed. You see, he's the next son in line. If his his brother's wife doesn't produce an heir in his brother's name, then he stands to inherit everything. Not just money and land and flocks, but title from his father Judah. And he has no intention of allowing his brother's wife to bear a son that is actually his, but in his brother's name that will take his inheritance. And so, in Genesis chapter 38, verse 9 through 11, it says, But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. And so whenever he went unto his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. And so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And so having known the law in their heart, even if they didn't have it by rote, this was the thing that was supposed to be done to maintain the means in the house of Judah amongst which the Christ would come. And Onan refuses to do it because of his own selfish greed. And so the Lord kills him. Kills him. Man, he, was, he would have made a good Pharisee. I did all the stuff, just not the stuff I was actually supposed to do. And so the Lord kills him, and now you've got a boy, just a boy, that is the next in line. And Judah says, look, once again, he's got a good talking point, he's just a boy. But the inspired scripture written by Moses tells us, His heart in this manner was not, he's just a boy. It was fear that he's going to die the same way that the other two have. So what you need to do is just go be a widow and stay here until he is old enough to perform the duty of his husband and 
of a husband. And yet, when the time comes, Judah refuses to do it. It brings about desperation in Tamar. It's interesting where we find ourselves. Because, folks, we are not a people of desperation. Now, I will tell you this. If you do not belong to Christ, you need to be in a state of desperation because you are desperate. You just don't know it. And you need to realize your desperate condition so that it will drive you to the foot of the cross where you may confess and repent and believe and so be saved. But for the people that are saved, what we know is that we are desperate for one and one only. The only thing that we are desperate for is for Christ himself. That's it. And if you find yourself in a point of desperation as a Christian for something other than Christ, all the sirens need to be going off. It should make you immediately go, whoa, just don't move. Don't move until the the desperation meter has been recalibrated to point to Christ. When you hear a Christian say something along the lines of, well, I know it won't do any good, but we've got to do something, you should immediately remove yourself from whatever that something is. Because friends, let me tell you, you don't have to do anything. Not as long as Christ sits on his throne. And so here you see Tamar, and she's desperate. She's desperate. And her desperation leads to sin. Because acts of desperation, apart from the salvific act of moving in desperation to Jesus Christ, apart from that move of desperation... All desperation is by definition not of faith apart from that one. And anything that's not of faith is sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 14 verse 23, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Or if you want to look at it on the positive side, as we already quoted once this morning out of 1 Peter chapter 14, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Tamar was suffering, but she was suffering according to God's will. It was God that put her husband to death. He killed him because he was wicked. He killed her brother-in-law because he was wicked. She was suffering according to God's will. What she needed to do was sit still. But she didn't. In verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died, and when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to the sheep shearers and 
he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and set at the entrance to the name. It's on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was the daughter, his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Wow. <laughs> What's it worth? A goat. And she said, if you will give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet. This would have been the seal that he used as his signature to sign any legal document. Might as well have been his thumbprint in the day that it was given. Your signet and your cord and your staff in your hand and so he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, and taking off her bale, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, hey, he's an honest John, right? Pays his bills. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, because you know you're not going to go yourself, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her, and he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name and at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. And so he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. In other words... If the whore that you previously serviced is not at the same corner that she was before, if you come back looking for her over and over, you look like a joke. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify those whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah identified and said, she is more righteous than I, since I will not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. I would have you note that this man and this woman will produce the tribe out of which the scepter will rise. 
I see him, but not now, Balaam said in Numbers chapter 24. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. It is this Judah that will produce the lion and the lamb. And he, quite frankly, sucks. It is this Judah that will produce David the king, the one after God's own heart, that is the physical testimony of the king that is to come. For in Matthew, it is not simply that Judah would father Perez in Zerah by Tamar, but that David, which would come from them, was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In Genesis chapter 38, you've got some of the most wicked incest that you could possibly see. In 2 Samuel, in chapter 11, it's lust and murder. In chapter 11, in verse 1, it says, In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent to Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened... It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now guys, if I can give you a little background color here to kind of fill in the blanks. The, the reality is, is that in America, I think most of us, when we think of Jew, we think of the first thing that pops into your mind if you're going to have a mental picture, is kind of ultra-Orthodox from New York City. This is, think about a Jew in America, that's what you see. You know, black felt hat, big rim, long, curly hair off the sides of their beard, full beard, and they're pretty much the whitest white bread that has ever been in a wonder bag protruding Adam's apple, skinny, the whole bit. That's because, historically speaking, they are not, the, the ultra-Orthodox that we see in the eastern United States are not the blood children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, they are eastern Europeans that in about 1000 A.D. were... Um, converted by Jewish missionaries that came out of Israel. And so really what you've got is something that's closer to a Cossack than you do a Jew. And you go to Israel and you look at what the blood-born children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob look like and it is nothing like that. They are full-boned, olive-skinned, almond eyes with jet black hair that hangs down to their waist. 
If I may be so frank, they are some of the most beautiful women you will ever see. David should have been on the battlefield. Instead, he was lying on the couch. And she caught his eye. Now here's the crazy thing about Bathsheba. Scripture doesn't tell us her position in this deal. We literally don't know. Because she's not the point. David's the point. We don't know what her position is. We don't know... Man, you can preach it. You, you could assume it both ways. You can't preach it both ways. You could assume it both ways. You might say to yourself, man, hey, look, here's this girl who was just out there taking a bath, doing the stuff that you're supposed to do that the law prescribes that you do. I mean, this, this is a, you know, ritual bathing for uncleanliness. I mean, the, the law prescribes this thing. This is supposed to be done. Maybe she's just a girl out there doing the thing she's supposed to do. And, and, and you know, you got the king over here being the peeping Tom, and then she's going to get called over. We all know the narrative, right? And what do you do? I mean, look, man, this is a true monarchy, which just basically don't exist in the world today. The king is the law. And so if he says, hey, you're coming with me, guess what? You're coming with him or else. So maybe it's that. Or maybe it's caught the king's eye. The fact of the matter is, is we don't know. We do know the heart of David. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, and now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And so David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Got to clean up the mess. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Got to have a little formal chit-chat. Don't want to get right to the point too quick. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house and went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house and all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house and when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house David said to Uriah have you not come from a journey why did you not go down to your house and Uriah said to David man it's so upside down it's so upside down the Gentile, the former Gentile dog <laughs> in their presence. And the king of Israel. Men going to be men. Send him home to his wife. He's been on the battlefield for months. Give him a couple of nights R&R. And the guy won't do it. 
And the crazy thing is, it would be completely righteous for him to go do it. But there is a priority of righteousness that says some things are righteous and some things have priority in righteousness over these things. And Uriah is the only guy in this deal that seems to have his head screwed on straight. And he says this, Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And so David said to Uriah, remain here also and tomorrow I will send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And so he tried to send him home the first time. He got him full and got him drunk the second time, and that was still not sufficient for this man. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. I mean, this might as well be the godfather As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would be shooting from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobusheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And so basically what Joab is saying is when you go and tell him we got our rear kicked and a bunch of your men are dead and the king gets angry and says, why in the world as a commander of men you know better than to do that? Just tell him Uriah is dead too. That'll put him at ease. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, because we have to keep up appearances, when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, at this point in time, I think you have to ask yourself why. Why, if according to Colossians chapter 1, that in him all things have their being, that he's holding it all together, that he is ordaining 
the course of redemptive history that he turns the will of the king like water in his hand, according to the scriptures. Why would you ordain it to be this way? Why? Guys, that's not just messy. You take the, the, the Judah Tamar narrative and, and the David Bathsheba narrative and smash them together. That's as bad as it I mean, I, man, I'll have been in the pulpit come June for over 18 years. And we've never dismissed our kids before. <laughs> This is dirty business. Why in the world, if you turn the heart of kings in your hand, if you hold all things together, why would you choose this genealogy? Why would you choose this line? Why would you ordain it to be this way? We've been saying it for the last three weeks on Wednesday night small groups and justice in the wild, wild west. Let me tell you something. If you're looking for a hero in Scripture, you're only going to find one. Just one. Oh, men have their moments. Godly men have ordained moments. But one thing you can guarantee about men is they will be men. The one thing you can guarantee about women is they will be women. They will be the sons and the daughters of Adam. If you're going to find a hero in Scripture, you will only find one. In John chapter 2, in verse 23 through 25, it says that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So, why do you ordain this line? And, good grief, if you did ordain it, why in the world do you inspire Matthew to record it? Isn't this something that you would rather keep swept under the rug? Everybody's family's got their dirty little secrets. Everybody's got that one cousin you don't want to talk about. Maybe 12 cousins you don't want to talk about. And then there's the uncles. Why, why Why do you bring this front and center, man? Why don't you start with the virgin conceives? That seems like a great place to start. Why doesn't this deal start? And look, okay, there is a necessity to connect him to the promise, for he is the promise. I guess what you ought to say is there's a necessity to connect the promise to him. You need to speak about Abraham, you need to speak about David, but you don't have to necessarily talk about Tamar and Judah and Bathsheba. There's other ways to do this. Luke does a little slicker job. Why? 
This is why. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Conviction, repentance, forgiveness, contentment, and hope. Conviction, repentance, forgiveness, contentment, and hope. This is why. Because the sons and daughters of Adam are dead. You cannot find a line that will be good enough to bring forth the Christ. None are sufficient, none are capable. None are able to see it through. If it's going to be saw through, it's going to be saw through by one hero and one hero alone. And the way he has chosen to do it is through conviction, repentance, forgiveness, contentment, and hope. So it looks like this. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew up with him, and is with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flocks or herd, of, or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Do you understand that that punishment is still unfolding to this day? To this day. When buses blow up full of school children in Israel, that is this unfolding. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Folks, that's conviction. That's conviction. Notice he doesn't pull any punches. You can't. Man, if you're going to see the gospel preached and if you're going to see men and women and boys and girls be saved, you can't pull any punches on conviction. 
Because if, if salvation is coming to the cross and dying in order that you may live, then the conviction has to be to such a degree that you look at it and you go, death is preferable. So when you say stuff, like nobody wants to sleep with their brother's wife except for the son of the President of the United States, which he says is fine. And people get all nervous about that. Let me tell you something. The prophets put their fingers on their leaders every time they opened their mouth. Nathan put it on David. He said, you're the man. And conviction had its day. Conviction had its day. Because conviction that comes from God produces something. And it produces repentance. And so in... 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Man, isn't it crazy what happens when God shows you your own sin? Isn't it crazy? One, a minute before, you're ready to kill the guy that's guilty of something that's way less than what you're guilty of. And then when God actually shows it to you, and He uses means to do it, in this case the means of the words of a prophet, but it is the Holy Spirit that is showing David his sin. Man, the preacher that can run his mouth all day long. It's like shooting BBs at a battleship. But man, when the Holy Spirit speaks through that and you see it, and David goes, man, I am that. And the grace of God and of God alone, conviction leads to repentance and repentance leads to forgiveness. Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. He's put it away. And the way he's putting it away, <laughs> you don't even know, is the means is you. <laughs> He's going to take this train wreck that was Judah and the current derailing that is you and Bathsheba. And he's going to bring about the thing that allows him to be both just and justifier. He's using you to do it. It's what's so, man... These Armenians just don't get it. He's using you to do it. You're the miracle. He is not content to speak stars and rocks and water into existence. He speaks living, sentient beings. And so, when for the first time... 
a minute ago, you were angry at this guy over stealing somebody's lamb, and now you see what you are. Your heart changes, and you go from being angry to being broken. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. And the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan Nathan went to his house. There are real-time consequences for sin that lie apart from forgiveness. And so there it is. The child will die. Conviction, repentance, forgiveness, and then something that I think is so profound that the church just almost always gets it wrong today. And that is a, and man, if there's one part of this sermon you can hear, man, I think, I think the church, I think we get it wrong today. We tell people, you know, you name it and claim it, whatever. We won't make the jokes there, though it's ridiculous. Um, this idea that you can, that with enough prayer you can change God's mind. Yeah. Now look, prayer is effectual. Don't you misquote me. Prayer is effectual. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much, Scripture says. You know why? Because he's praying righteously, which means he's praying according to the will of God, not according to his own will. Now, we did a study on prayer several years ago, and if you were in that study, what you will know is this, is prayer does not exist to align God's will to your desires. It exists to align your desires to God's will. That's why the prayer of the righteous man availeth much, because he is praying out of a righteous heart. And yet Scripture, see, we want, we want to make God the simpleton and us the big complex creature, and it's exactly the opposite. We've got to be like little children if we're going to come to them. Man, He's the complex creature. Look, in this Word... There is not only room for, but encouragement for two things that the natural man would say were contradictory to each other, but I would tell you they are not. And that is a desire for something that would be, generally speaking, good. So we're not talking about a desire for evil. We're talking about a desire for something that would be, generally speaking, good. It would be good if this happened. I have a desire for the loss. I have a desire for, for Jim to get his kidney cut out and they come back and go, huh, you had the biggest benign growth we've ever seen. There is room for desire for something that is generally good while still being content with whatever the particular ordained will of God is. 
It's like a kid that comes to their, their dad and says, Dad, can I have a cookie? It's a great question. I like cookies. Can I have a cookie? Dad doesn't answer. Just keeps fiddling. He's working. Can I have a cookie? Keeps fiddling. He's working. Can I have a cookie? Keeps fiddling. He's working. It's fine to ask, man. As a matter of fact, Scripture encourages you to ask right up until the point that God answers. And if the answer is yes, guess what? You get a cookie. And if the answer is no, the answer is no, then asking again is a sin. Conviction, repentance, forgiveness, and then desire. Guys, and listen to me. And I got to tell you, in my experience, I've seen it. I've seen it in myself. We all struggle with this. This is, this is not a small thing, but I got to be honest with you. Ladies, you really struggle with it. There's something you want. And God says no, and you just can't get over it. Men do it too. Don't get me wrong. But if I'm going to be pastoral and just be honest, there's certainly more dropping on my plate. And listen, I'm not after you. I'm trying to help you. It's good to desire good things right up until the Lord says no maybe says yes maybe says yes but the people of God are marked by a contentment that comes out of conviction and repentance and salvation that changed us so that we're cool with whatever He has. And if you, if you can't let go of that fleshly desire that says, it's supposed to be this way, it is going to eat you. It will affect every relationship you have. It will be like a cancer in your bones. You have to be able to go, okay, Lord, I trust you. How, if you can't, how in the world can you accept this genealogy as being the one that brings forth your salvation? How can you accept that this is okay? How can you accept a cord and a signet and spill it on the ground lest I get my inheritance taken away? How can you accept the murder of a righteous man by an adulterous king that somehow can be described as being after God's own heart? If you don't trust Him, how can you accept this? And if you can't accept the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, I have no idea how you can accept the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. contentment now look David doesn't want his boy to die and 
you know, it would be a good thing if God decided to show mercy and save that child's life. That would be a good thing. David's not going to ask for something that's outside of the box. But when the answer comes, as hard as it is, he's losing a son. When the answer comes, what you'll find in David is the mark of the regenerate heart that says, okay, okay, I don't like it. Wouldn't be my choice. But it is well with my soul. So it looks like this. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. Where else are you going to go? I mean, if the Lord afflicts the kid, a doctor ain't going to fix him. The only place you can go is to the one that's doing the afflicting. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him to raise him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day the child died. For seven days... David laid prostrate prostrate, on the ground. He didn't eat. He begged God to save his boy. And on the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. And by that they mean he may throw himself on his sword. Because conviction has already had its day. Nathan already told him, You are that man. This is your fault. But the thing about godly conviction and godly grief, and the way you know it from fleshly conviction and fleshly grief, is that fleshly conviction and fleshly grief leads to despair. And we are not a people of despair. Godly conviction and godly grief leads to repentance and the mercy, grace, and life that comes from it. And what you see in David is not fleshly grief. It's godly grief. So they were worried that he was going to throw himself on his sword. David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. 
If you're going to put that into modern vernacular, he took a shower, he put on some fresh clothes after seven days. I'm sure he needed it. Put on a little cologne. And then he went to church and worshiped. And then he went to his house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? Guys, If the, the new creation does stuff that the world just doesn't understand. They just don't get it. What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David didn't relish in the death of his son. David spent seven days laying on the floor without eating or bathing, begging the Lord to save his boy. And yet, out of the conviction and repentance and forgiveness, when the Lord's will was made clear, David was content with it. He was content. Guys, i got to tell you, when you look at the hardships that come upon people, when you look at the things that occur to the people of God, man, you can fake a lot of stuff. You can feel bad about the stuff that you've done. You can wish that you hadn't done it. You can ask for forgiveness, but one of the things that humans invariably can't fake for any extended period of time is contentment. If you're not content, it's going to show itself. And David is satisfied. And therefore, contentment leads to future hope. And then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And sent a message by Nathan the prophet. And so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah. Beloved of the Lord. The reality is this. You want to know why? It's not a proof text. It's a proof genealogy. In the very means by which the Christ would come into the world, God was displaying the reality that He was coming was the only hope that the world had. That's it. Man, when you look at the line by which the Christ came and it's this much of a mess, then the only hope that any of us have is Him. That's it. And so today, like every day, we beseech you, come to Christ. 
You may not look as much of a mess on the outside as Judah did. You may not look as much of a failure as David was. But let me assure you, you are. And Jesus Christ is the answer. So come.